If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of 1 Peter. As we continue making our way through this letter from Peter to the church, we'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13 this morning as we wrap up this chapter today, and we'll look at chapter 3, parts of chapter 3 next week. With the Word of God open, let's pray and ask for His help on our time in the Word. Heavenly Father, we come before You now with Your Word open, asking You to feed us by it. Would You convict us of our sin? Would You rebuke us in our hard-heartedness? Would You correct us in our wrong thinking? And would You train us for righteousness' sake that we might live honorably among the Gentiles, that they might see our good works and our behavior and give glory to our Father in heaven. Speak now, we pray, Lord, Your servants are listening. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please take heed how you hear it. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put people to silence, excuse me, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and authoritative word. Well, here in our text we find a topic that many perhaps especially in the American church, have decided to do away with. The idea of submitting to human authorities, especially governing authorities. How are we to interpret Peter's words here? Well, there's a a breadth of approaches to this text. Some have suggested that Peter's really talking about just human governments, only the good ones. Submit to them, obviously, because they're good. Of course, the text doesn't imply that, let alone say it explicitly. In fact, verse 18, if you look there again very quickly with me, seems to suggest otherwise. Peter says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, 
not just to the good ones, but also the unjust. And we'll deal with the context into which Peter was writing here shortly. Others have said that we should assume the Benedict option. That is, we should simply retreat from the world altogether and try to find our peace in the solitude of Christian community. Well, Christian community is wonderful, isn't it? And it's something that we here at Christ Covenant Church pursue heartily. It's something the Bible commends, but it's not synonymous with cultural retreat. We're called to be in the world, among the Gentiles, living as exiles in view of a watching world. Remember verse 12 from a couple weeks ago, keep your conduct among the, among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak of you, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven. That implies that they can see us and that we're among them. Theonomists suggest that the principal work of the Christian church is to replace all civil governments with explicitly Christian ones so that God's moral law might both be enacted and enforced in the public square. Now, of course, I paint with a broad brush here. This exists across the spectrum. On the one end of the spectrum, you have a sort of militant revolutionary ideology that suggests that we should forcibly take over the public square And then on the other end, those who simply encourage Christians to vote for candidates that would best uphold God's standards. But what everybody needs to understand is that no matter who is voted into office, there's only one true king of the kingdom. And no president, however Christian he might be, no Congress, no Senate, no mayor or governor or city council can cause God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So how do you react to this command from Peter to submit to authority? How do you think about governments and authorities and rulers, especially the bad ones, especially the unjust ones, especially the ones that seem so far out of alignment with God's will or even out of alignment with basic human decency? Have you adopted a posture of grumbling and complaining about every decision those in authority make? Do you retreat? Sticking your head in the sand and waiting for Christ to return. Let the culture go to hell in a handbasket if it's going to. Do you fight? Have you become a revolutionary who has no room in your vocabulary for the word submit? Well, this morning I want us to think about two aspects of what it means to submit as exile servants. Two aspects of what it means to submit as exile servants in this present wicked age. Number one, we are called to submit even when it least makes sense. And number two, we are called to submit because it most reflects Christ. We're called to submit even when it least makes sense and because it most reflects Christ. So what does Peter say about living as exile servants when it least makes sense? Notice the very first thing he says in verse 13. Be subject. Be subject. This is Peter's opening instruction to the church concerning submission to authority. And the word be subject here means to subordinate yourself, to willingly place yourself under authority. It's a word that would be used to describe, for example, the chain of command in the military. It means placing yourself under the authority of those who have been placed above you. And there's an implication there, isn't there? That someone is doing the placing in the chain of command. Now, if you've served in the military, you know full well, as I do, that you can't make people that you outrank do what you want them to do. 
There are some people who join the military and think that that's how it works, that just by virtue of your rank, you can tell people to do what they should do, and they'll do it, and some of them will, but you can't make them. There's a willing subjection to the commands of senior enlisted and officers. That's just how it works. And that's what Peter has in view here, that we willingly submit to, subordinate ourselves to the authority of those who have been placed above us. Notice that Peter makes no statement concerning the quality or goodness or morality or likability of these human authorities. He simply tells us that as subjects of Christ, we are to be subjects of those Christ has placed in authority over us. And this naturally rubs us the wrong way, doesn't it? Perhaps never in history more than in 21st century America do we find Christians at friction with what Peter says here in 1 Peter chapter 2. What does it mean to subject yourself to someone who's been placed in authority over you? Perhaps you've seen the great miniseries about the 501st Airborne in World War II, Band of Brothers. And if you're familiar with the 501st and their uh, long, expansive engagement in the uh, European campaign, you'll know that all of their training started in a little base in Georgia. And while they were in Georgia, Easy Company of the 501st had a company commander named Lieutenant Sobel. And he was, by all accounts, a terrible leader. He was abusive, manipulative. He was the sort of person that believed that because he wore the rank, he had the authority. He's the sort of leader that thinks that he has to tell people that he's a leader in order to get them to follow him. Well, he had a a platoon commander that worked for him named Richard Winters, Lieutenant Winters, And uh, Sobel made life pretty difficult for Lieutenant Winters because the men loved Lieutenant Winters because of the way that he led them, because of the way that he treated them, because he was there with them in the training and in the fight. And there's actually a pretty humorous scene where uh, he's trying to get back at the company for the fact that they don't respect his authority. And so he tells Lieutenant Winters, I'm going to put you in charge of the mess hall for a month to test your leadership ability. And I think it's a good time as any for us to celebrate the success we've had in training. We're moving on to our next phase. Uh, Let's skip physical training this afternoon, and let's have a day of lectures and rest. And I think we should celebrate with a big spaghetti lunch. And so all the troops file into the mess hall, and they go to the front, and they're getting their spaghetti poured in and some red liquid that's supposed to be either tomato sauce or ketchup. And they're moving through the line. They sit down, and they're chowing down on their, on their food and filling their bellies with pasta. And Lieutenant Sobel kicks the door in and says, afternoon lectures are canceled. We're running Curahi, which is the mountain that they had to run three miles up and three miles back. Now, this is not ideal carb loading for those of you that like to run up mountains. And so you see the troops are all running up the hill, you know, losing their spaghetti lunch on the way, and Lieutenant Sobel thinks he's getting them. But what happens is the men rally around his bad leadership and encourage one another up the hill until they get to the top. And if you follow the story of Easy Company 501, you'll discover in interviews from the men who made it all the way through the war that they 
attribute Lieutenant Sobel's dictatorial leadership as one of the root causes of their success in unity and camaraderie. They willingly subjected themselves to that. They could have dropped out because of what it pushed them towards. And Peter tells the Christian church, willingly subject yourself even to bad authority because that's what Christ would have you do. And consider what it might do for you. Don't forget that in Peter's uh, context, he's writing under the rule of Nero, who was burning Christians alive. He's telling the Christian church to submit to the very governing authority that would martyr him and kill Paul, the very governing authority that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do we see happen across the pages of Scripture, especially in the book of Acts, is that as the church experiences the persecution of bad authority, the church itself grows stronger and more unified in vision and mission together. And sometimes God allows bad leaders in our circumstances to grow the church, not to crush her. And the emphasis in our text here is in acting like servants, not trying to figure out when we should act like servants. Peter's concern is that God's people live in light of the sovereignty of the God who puts people in authority over us. Think about Abimelech, who we read about this morning in Judges. He was a bad leader, and God allowed him for a time to have ownership of the authority in order to cause his people to call out to him, to cry out to him for a better judge, for a righteous judge who would lead his people in equity. You know, Peter is aware of Paul's words in Romans chapter 13. Uh, Turn there to Romans chapter 13 with me for just a moment. This is sort of Paul's parallel passage to what we see in 1 Peter chapter 2 here. And in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Paul says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why is this? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Is that the perspective that we have on what's going on in our world today? Or do we sort of implicitly believe that God has lost control of the plot and the world is spinning out of control and his sovereign hand is no longer in the glove driving this vehicle? Or do we know that there is no authority except what has been instituted by God? And then he goes on to say, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And Peter's saying the same, much the same thing to us here today in 1 Peter chapter 2. Be subject to these authorities for the Lord's sake. To rebel against the authorities God has put in place is to rebel against the God who put them there. Peter and Paul are not just talking about just leaders or good leaders or appropriate authorities or God-honoring authorities. Notice the overall tone of this passage. Peter mentions unjust masters in verse 18, enduring sorrow and suffering unjustly in verse 19, being beaten in verse 20. Because Christ suffered for us in verse 21. The whole tenor of this passage is the unjustness of earthly leaders who make our lives difficult and being willfully subjected to their authority for God's sake. 
He uses the example of Christ, which we'll look at later, who even suffered unto death under these authorities for us. How then can we not suffer for His sake and His name's glory? It's important to note that Peter does not imply that our submission to these human authorities, be they governors or other rulers, is a blind or thoughtless submission. It's not a blind or thoughtless submission that Peter is commending here. Rather, it's a free submission that we make. Look at verse 16. Live as people who are free, he says, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. And in context here, the evil would be not submitting to the human institutions or being subject to them. Live as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We live as free servants, as those who have been set free by Christ, of being of those who are citizens of His kingdom, enabling us to exercise that freedom to submit to His will for our lives. Peter tells us that honoring Christ means submitting to the authority He has ordained. Throughout this passage, he says, it's for the Lord's sake. You do it as servants of God. You do it as those who fear God. It's a gracious thing in the sight of God to endure suffering as willing servants. Martin Luther once observed that a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all who is subject to none. But a Christian is a perfectly free, excuse me, dutiful servant of all who is subject to everyone. This is why in verse 18, Peter says, be subject to your masters, both the good and the unjust. He says, subject yourselves. Choose to subject yourselves to the authority of those God has appointed over you as willing servants, because you're really my servants, God says. And Peter practices this posture. We see it in his own example in this letter, don't we? Turn back to chapter 1 and verse 1 with me. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, Peter calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, if there were a position of authority in the church, it would be that one, wouldn't it? As an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter had been personally selected by Jesus to be a part of his small band of followers, and then out of that group personally selected to be among the 12 called out from among the disciples to serve as apostles, and then personally selected from among that group to be among the three who would spend the most time with Jesus one-on-one, along with James and John. And Peter says, I'm an apostle. For all intents and purposes, Peter could have wrote to the church and simply said, do this and do that and do this exercising his authority. But look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 11. He doesn't say, listen, you subjects of mine, do what I say. Rather, he says, beloved, I urge you, I plead with you to live this way. Do you hear the tone of Peter's voice in the way he talks to the church? Even as he's issuing them strong commands from God, direct word from God, he doesn't stand on the platform of his authority and lord it over them like the Gentiles do, does he? Maybe he learned the lesson that Jesus was teaching his apostles when they had an argument about who would sit on his left hand and on his right and who would be the greatest among themselves. And he said, that's what the Gentiles do. 
You shouldn't do it that way. Don't lord it over each other. And Peter says, beloved, I love you all. You're my brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so I urge you, I plead with you to act this way for Christ's sake, for God's glory. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles that they might glorify God. Be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake. This is God's will so that by doing it, they would be silenced. Fear God and honor the emperor, he says. It's easy to lose sight of this when we forget that God is not surprised by who's in power. When we start to think that God has lost control of the situation in the world, which for some reason, Christians seem to forget on repeat about every four years. Do we really think that God is going to take a nap on us next November? That we're going to wake up one day living in a world that he's no longer in control of, that he no longer sovereignly ordains the business of this world, that he no longer rules in his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions? What have we to be afraid of? If God is for us, what president can be against us? We willingly subject ourselves to human authority because God puts it there and because the secret things belong to the Lord and we don't know the ends for which he does these things. We continue to walk by faith and in obedience to our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, knowing that it's his job to care for us all the way through this life unto glory. We don't lament like those who have no hope. Oh, Lord, how could this have happened to us? But we remember that God ordains those into power. And look ahead to verse 23. Speaking of Jesus being unjustly persecuted, it tells us that he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. There's coming a day when everyone who exercises their derived authority we'll have to answer for it before God. And that's far better for us that the one who judges justly will make them give an account for their leadership than that we who can't judge justly because we ourselves are full of sin and who can't justly accuse other people of being bad with their authority when we all ourselves are. Remember, Jesus says, you're wicked people and you, don't, you give good gifts to your children, but he accuses us all of being wicked in our hearts. We leave these things to the Lord because he alone can judge justly. And the bottom line then is that there are no exceptions given in this text. Peter's command is comprehensive. It doesn't matter that those in authority are good or bad. It doesn't matter if you voted for them or not. It doesn't matter if you agree with them or not. Now, I know some of you are thinking, but what about Acts 4? In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John uh, speak to the, the Jewish leaders and they tell them, well, you've told us to stop proclaiming Christ. But whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. It's not right that we should disobey God in order to obey men. Well, the issue is, in Acts chapter 4, the specific thing that they're being instructed to stop doing is proclaiming the gospel. Uh, not to be too flippant about it, 
but Peter and John and the apostles were not being told that they couldn't carry concealed firearms wherever they wanted. And so this wasn't a matter of the government usurping their inalienable American freedoms, to which they reply, well, God has told us we can, and you can't take that away from us. Rather, they were being told, you may not tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, to which they reply, we have to obey God rather than you. Christ Jesus is the one that commissioned us to go into the world proclaiming the gospel. Even as he's commissioned us to go into the world proclaiming the gospel. And so when, if the time comes when we're told you may not gather for worship and you may not tell people about Jesus Christ, there's a whole different conversation to have. That's not what Peter's talking about here. Here in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter, by the way, the one who is speaking here in Acts chapter 4, says subject yourself to the human institutions and governing authorities. Well, this whole concept applies to more relationships than just our relationship with the civic authority, doesn't it? Uh, It matters to more than just the civil sphere. And Peter will unpack much of this in the following chapters. But for a moment, I want us to consider just for a moment the relationship in the home as it concerns this instruction here in 1 Peter chapter 2. So children, our young people here, I know there are many of you this morning and we're far enough into this that I might be losing you. So just for a moment, young people, kids, if you can uh, get the wiggles out and and pay attention for just a second, I want to speak directly to you about what God's Word says to you. Throughout the Bible, children are told to obey their parents and to honor their parents. And sometimes parents make the mistake of not including the rest of that command in their instruction to their children. And we simply say to our kids, you must obey me and you must honor me. As if that's all God's word says about it. And what we do in that case is we fail to provide the undergirding structure that Scripture gives our children and gives us as parents to instruct our children towards obedience and honor. What the Bible tells you kids is to obey your parents and the Lord because it's right, because God wants you to. Not because your parents are always correct, not because your parents are necessarily always deserving of your honor and obedience, because I'm a parent and I make mistakes all day, every day, but because the Lord is your authority, and He has structured our home that parents exercise authority over children. And so He says, children, subject yourself to your parents in the Lord because it's the right thing to do. It's the very same thing He says to us here. He says to all of us, be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake. And so, kids, what, God's want, what God wants you to know this morning is that you're called to obey and honor your parents in the Lord also because it's God's will for you, just like the rest of us are called to obey the governing authorities because that's God's will for us. Parents, don't miss this. We can't expect our children to submit to our God-given authority if we spend all our time grumbling against the authorities God has put over us. 
we can't expect our children to have any instinct or inclination to honor us and obey and submit to our authority if all they hear us do around the dinner table, from the back seat of the cars we're driving, or wherever it might be, is complaining and grumbling and rejecting the authority that God has put over us. It's the same concept when it comes to worship, isn't it? Parents, you know that you're training your children to think about worship when we come here. And we shouldn't expect our children to experience the joy of the Lord in corporate worship if all they ever experience is the joyless worship of their parents in corporate worship. And we're the sort of church where we get to come here. We get to come here into God's presence each Lord's Day to worship Him in spirit and in truth. That He invites us here week after week in spite of all the things we've done wrong from Sunday afternoon through Sunday morning. And He still invites us in and He still assures us of His pardon and He still speaks to us in His word and He still receives our praises lisping as they may be. What a joy, what a privilege it is to come into God's presence and to gather with his people, to be counted among his sheep. And we should be overjoyed and celebrate with hearts full of gratitude that God would pick us out of all of the mass of humanity. We should display that joy to our children in worship, and I hope that you're encouraged to do so. Well, the big problem we have when we're told to submit to bad leaders all leaders really, but bad ones especially, is that we have a man-centered view of the concept of submission. What I mean by that is we tend to think principally about how our submitting to authority affects me. How's this going to make me feel if I submit here? What if I'm treated poorly by submitting to that boss or that government? What if I'm treated unjustly what if I lose privileges or freedoms that I like? What if I can't have peace and comfort in this world by virtue of my submission? That's man-centered thinking about Peter's command here. But Peter's text is not man-centered. It's God-centered. He says, do this for the Lord's sake. This is God's will. Fear God. You're servants of God. This is you should do this mindful of God. Endure sorrow unjustly because this is a gracious thing in God's sight. Do you see the difference there? When we approach the concept of submission from a man-centered position, of course we're going to reject the idea because it sounds terrible for us. But when we think about it in terms of God-centered, what does it do for God's glory and God's reputation and is it in keeping with God's will? And that ought to change everything about the way we consider submitting. When our flesh fights against the notion of subjecting ourselves as a servant of human authority, we're really fighting against God's authority. And it's a matter of our priorities. Do we prioritize our own comfort, our own peace, our own happiness, our livelihood perhaps? Or do we prioritize God's honor? and His name being upheld among the nations, and His will for our lives. That's the point that Peter leans to in the second half of our text. He wants us to submit, to live as exile servants, because it most reflects Christ's example to us. Look at verse 21. 
He says, for to this you have been called, suffering he's speaking of, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That word example is the idea of a a letter drawn out that a child can trace to learn how to write. Uh, I have younger kids who are at that stage in their education, at least one of them is right now, where he comes home with a, a little worksheet that has, you know, three lines on it, two solid lines and a dotted line through the middle to show where the parts of the uppercase and lowercase letters should go. And he's got the uppercase A and the lowercase A and their dotted lines. You know what I'm talking about? And he, he goes over them with a pencil and he's learning to write big A and little A and big B and little b. And he's doing it so that way he can learn how to write on his own. He's tracing the letters over and over and over again by practice, by observation, by imitation in order to be able to write. And that's what Peter's telling us to do here. He's saying Christ has left you dotted lines for you to follow with your life. And we find those in the Gospels, don't we? We see in the Gospels what Christ did in light of subjecting himself to the authorities. So much so did Christ subject himself to the authorities that he went to a mock trial, was unjustly accused of sin and blasphemy, and was ultimately crucified, wasn't he? The only person to ever truly suffer is an innocent one. He's the only one who had no sin. He's the only one without deceit in his mouth. And yet when he was reviled, he didn't respond like a lamb is silent before its shearers, he went to the cross. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. The same Jesus who said to his apostles earlier, don't you realize I can call 12 legions of angels to come save me right now? He didn't threaten when he, was, when he suffered, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Someone once said that you can tell how much of a servant you are by how you act when you're treated like one. You can tell how much of a servant you are by how you act when you're treated like one. And we might say that you can tell how much, how much like Christ you are by how you act when you're treated like him. How much like Christ you are by how you act when you're treated like him. The reason that living as servants is so difficult is because when we feel mistreated, our instinct is to repay like for like. And it doesn't take very long to see this in our lives, does it? Parents, when your children rebel against you and your instinct is to blow your top and yell at them because your authority's been challenged. And so the only way for me to regain the upper hand to get back that authority is to start yelling at my kids or my spouse or that my employee, because that's where real authority is found. Or perhaps when you're driving down the road and someone decides that you're going just a little bit too slow for them, and you look in your rearview mirror and you realize that you can't even see the windshield wipers on their car, they're so close, and you think to yourself, wait a minute, this is my road, I'm going to slow way down and teach them a lesson. 
that's all this is. That's just us repaying evil for evil. That's us reviling against those who revile against us. That's us lashing out and threatening when we suffer or experience difficulty. That's our instinct. That's why this notion of submitting yourselves willingly like Christ is so difficult. And the thing that really ought to strike us is that Christ did this for sinners like us. Look at what it says in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body. Our sins, not his own our sins in his body on the tree. He had done no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. He didn't even stand up for himself when they mocked him and tried him. Yet he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He endured suffering at the hands of a wicked government that he ordained in order for you and me to die to sin and live unto righteousness. Go back to Acts chapter 4 with me for just a second before we wrap this up. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have been told by the council, the Sadducees and so forth, to stop teaching about Jesus. And they go back to the band of disciples and report what had been said. And they say, in quoting Psalm chapter 2, I'm starting in verse 27. For truly, in this city, were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do wicked things that were outside of your control. No, no, no. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The most grievous act of injustice a child of God has ever experienced is the crucifixion of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, which he endured silently for our sake and because of our sin. And if he could submit himself to the human authorities that would take his life for our sake, then how can we not do the same for his namesake among the nations? By submitting ourselves, because this is the will of God for us, he says. And it's a glorious thing, a gracious thing in his sight. As we bring this service to a close, I want us to think very quickly about the last thing Peter says about Jesus in verse 25. He says, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. These two phrases, these two words, shepherd and overseer, ought to produce great comfort for God's people. Think about what they convey. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd feeds and nourishes and tends and cares for and carries and binds up and keeps and protects and leads his sheep. 
That's Jesus' job. He's our shepherd. It brings up thoughts of Psalm 23, doesn't it? That when life gets difficult, his rod and staff are with us to protect and comfort us. That when we're hungry, he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. That when we're exhausted, he anoints our head with oil and he leads us to green pastures and still waters that we could be refreshed. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the shepherd of our souls. If you are one of his people by faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone, if you've turned to him alone for salvation, that means he bore your sins in his body on the tree that you could die to sin and live to righteousness. It means he was wounded for your healing. And it means that his job is to care for you to protect you. And so when human institutions seem oppressive, who's our shepherd? Is he not caring for us in the midst of everything that goes on in the world? Does he not care for you at the cost of his own life? He is actively feeding you and tending to your needs and keeping you and restoring you and protecting you. And I pray that you know that that he's the shepherd of your soul. Peter also calls him the overseer. And this word, there's a lot of overlap between shepherd and overseer. But really what it means, and I say this specifically to us here at Christ Covenant Church today, it means that Jesus is our pastor. That's what it means. He's our pastor. We're between senior ministers right now. I'm the associate pastor. I'm just filling in for a time along with other men who are going to preach from this pulpit and share God's word with his people. But we're not pastorless because Jesus is our true pastor. He tends our souls. He feeds us with his own word. The best that anyone standing here can do is point you to him. He's our pastor He's our chief overseer. He's the one leading this church and ensuring the successful journey of each one of his people from here all the way to his home in glory. And so as you endure suffering in this life and you willingly subject yourself even to evil human institutions of authority, remember that you don't do so without protection. Jesus is your shepherd. He's our overseer. And we can suffer in light of the fact that Christ suffered for us and exampled to us what it means to subject ourselves willingly for the sake of God's glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the truth from your word. Would you cause it to spring up in our hearts to obedience and to worship that we might live as exile servants in this world, knowing, Lord, that this world is not our home, but our true king is our shepherd and overseer, Jesus Christ, who's preparing a place for us now. And we long to be with him in glory. In the meantime, Lord, we ask that you would fill our hearts with his spirit and receive our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.